Good evening, everyone. How are we doing tonight? Good. Wow, you guys are responsive already. It's usually like begging and it's weird, but now I'm making it weird. But we did do a nice job there so far. Hey, let me start here. Um, uh, there's a text in uh, John 11 that we're going to go into further here in a second, but it just caught my eye because it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also really important. Uh, there's a moment in Jesus' life that's captured in John 11 where Jesus is out in the sticks. He is trying to avoid the heat of the big city. There have been death threats that have been cast upon his life, and so he has gotten away with the boys to get away from that kind of noise. And while he's away, while he's in a place of peace and comfort, not to be disturbed, word reaches him that his brother from another mother, Lazarus, has fallen sick and has indeed died. Jesus returns to Judea. He stands before the tomb where Lazarus lays, and he makes this audacious and uh, a little bit of absurd claim. He says, take away the stone. Martha, Lazarus' brother, is, is standing right there uh, when Jesus says this thing, and she says, um, well, she says, I love your heart, Jesus. I see where you're coming from. I'm with you. I miss him, too. I get you, but just one problem. This is King James. Lord, by this time, he stinketh, for he hath been dead for four days. That is one of the most common pocket prayers that I pull out. Every morning when I hear my children crying, I say, Lord, I want to go down there, but he stinketh. You either put that baby back to sleep or you wake Lauren up. One or two options. <laughs> Lord, by this time, he stinketh. Before I say any other words tonight as we wrap up the series, I want to start with this text because one of the most important things that we can learn collectively, one of the most important things that Scripture reveals about the character of God is that God is a God who is concerned about the places that stink. We serve a God who is concerned about the places that stink. The places that convenience tries to keep us out of. The places that comfort feels compelled to steer us clear of. We serve a God who is concerned about the places that stink. Now, to be faithful to a God who is concerned about the places that stink is to go where that God goes. That is why for the past four weeks we've been doing this series called Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. Uh, we've been looking at the story of Jordan Davis and the issues that are present in his story and talking about these things because God is a God who is concerned about the places that stink. Not always convenient, not always easy, not always comfortable to go into those places that stink. And that's what we're called to do. That's the core of our faith. And so that's why we've been doing these series, why we've been having these conversations about racism and white supremacy and biases that we look through but rarely look at. That's why we did the cultural competency training this fall. That's why we did the Sacred Sites tour this fall. That's why we've had our Tuesday night table talks during this month. That's why we're doing the racial justice cohort here as a community is because we serve a God who is concerned about the places that stink. And so in order to be good news, in the midst of all kinds of bad news, we have to go to these places. Now, as we've gone into these conversations, as we've stepped and tried to faithfully follow this God into these places, what we've come to discover is when you step into places where the air is thick and the air stinks a little bit, you start to wake up. That is really the story of, well, it's, it's a spiritual truth. I mean, that is the first story you hear in the Bible. Moses catches wind of Egyptians. 
treating some of his brothers and sisters in a poor manner, and all of a sudden he rises up. The civil rights movement is all anchored upon people who wake up to the stink that's in the air, and they start to ask a few more questions, and they start to say a few more things. I think about that every time I, I, we play that opening video where we hear King's voice and we remember King's dream. And, and I say that not because that was a moment that stinked. That's not true at all. It's more like the three weeks after that moment, with that moment as the background. This moment where we have King's voice talking about a dream where his kids can play together, and then we have that dream seemingly to deflate, not in D.C., but in Birmingham, Alabama. 16th Street Baptist Church is the moment I think about, where on a Sunday morning in September, 200-plus people gathered to worship, much like we are gathering right now, gathered to be together, uh, gathered to worship Jesus. And four young girls who gathered that morning uh, were asked for the very first time in their lives if they could be ushers. Can you imagine the thrill that they had when they got that experience? They were asked to be in the adult service, but not just present in the adult service, get to be ushers. And they do what we all would have done. They go down to the basement, the lounge, the bathroom, and they make sure their hair and their dress and everything is in order. They did not know that the night before, Klansmen had planted 10 sticks of dynamite right next to that bathroom wall. While they're down there, these four beautiful girls were taken from the world. Denise McNair, Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. Killed just like that. Never got the chance to usher. Never got the chance to see another day. But what happened in this moment is while their lives were tragically blown away by ignorance and hatred, the stone that had covered and sealed up the stink of racism was also blown away. In fact, scholars, when they, when they try to assess historically the civil rights movement, they would point to this moment right here. And they would say that the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church was the most terrible act in this most divisive period in American history. And yet it's not extreme to suggest that because of what happened at this church, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act, Voting Rights Act of 1965 happened because of it, because of this devastation in these streets, because of the stone being blown to bits and the stink seeping out. When that smell of what was really happening when these four beautiful girls, with the backdrop of King's dream, people started to stand up and ask new questions. One of those men. In particular, it was this man right here. This is Charles Morgan Jr. He was uh, clearly a white attorney, 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 that's not a real thing, attorney and southerner by heart and heritage. He was, um, the next day he was scheduled to speak at the Birmingham Young Men's Business Club. So he stepped up to the podium the day after the bombing and he looked out at a sea of white faces of all of these men who were really the top of the totem pole in Birmingham. They were the ones that were controlling the cultural tide, and he was overcome. And he started to say some things that would leave him forever a marked man. He just couldn't shake the smell in the air. He actually had to leave Alabama after this because he had received death threats. His kids were being watched and followed. Uh, people were throwing bricks through his home. 
want to read you a little bit of what he said to that group of men that day when he started to smell something. Four little girls were killed in Birmingham yesterday. A mad, remorseful, worried community asks, who did it? Who threw that bomb? Was it a Negro or a white? All across Alabama, an angry, guilty people cry out in their mocking shouts of indignity and say they wonder why, who. Everyone then deplores the dastardly act. But you know the who of who did it is really rather simple. We all did it. Every last one of us is condemned for that crime and the bombing before it and a decade ago. We all did it. It is not by great acts, but by small failures, that freedom dies. Justice and liberty die quietly because people first learn to ignore injustice and then no longer recognize it. As I offer you a final word in this series tonight, and not a final word in this conversation, I want to talk about the small failures that just might ambush all of our future efforts in this work. In order for this series to be an investment well made, in order for these conversations to go beyond these four walls, uh, it's going to require each of us individually to take this work seriously and to take on the responsibility of racial justice and to take on this work that is so desperately needed and urgently needed in our city of Minneapolis. And so I want to identify what, what the most common small failures that trip people up, that completely hijack the movement between the head and what you have heard and the hands and how you will move. What are the things that seep in between to get in the heart and trip us up along the way? And I want to do so by going back to that story in John. I don't want to go to where Jesus is standing before the tomb. That's the finish line. I want to go back to the starting line where we can kind of retrace some of the steps that got him to the stone, made him say, take it away. John 11, 1 through 5, if you have your Bibles, reads like this. So a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. This is what we've been doing. We have been trying to receive the words of the wounded. We have been trying to receive the words of the wound. We are trying to collect and receive and be those sponges that take it in. It is important that as we leave here tonight and we take on the work that lies ahead, that that does not stop. It is important that you continue to read and to learn. It is important that you continue to further understand your own cultural identity. It is important that we continue to learn our own history, both as a people and also as a place. It is important that you continue to understand how whiteness functions out in society, how saturated we all are in it, how centralized it's become, how trained we are to see it as superior to all other colors. It is important that you continue to receive the words that are being sent to you. But one of the small failures that often happens in this journey of racial justice is that where Jesus is standing here is where we tend to stop. We tend to receive the word and then we stop. We tend to hear news of black pain in a white world, and we may make a comment, but we rarely will make a movement to care. We'll continue to learn, but we rarely will leave. We'll think more and more that our hands are standing still. 
But it's at this point, it's important to recognize that the first movement that Jesus makes is he turns to his friends and he says, let us go back to Judea. And when he says that, we're reminded again that information that doesn't lead to incarnation is never enough. For Christians, this is our core truth. This is, the, this is as central to your faith tradition as it gets. When God looked at earth and he said, I want to get in on that, it was the very act of the word becoming flesh. The existential word becoming the embodied flesh. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, a word can never sit still and stagnant as just a word. Eventually, it has to put some skin on and go to walk. It has to make a move. It has to head towards Judea. I was reminded of this. Uh, I'm in a guys group with some real amazing guys, and we, were, we just went through uh, the AA book, the big book, and we were going through, we went through all the steps, and we're sitting at the table, we're kind of rehashing the experience, what we had learned, what we had gained from it, and collectively around the table, we were singing the praises of this book. I mean, like, it is pretty amazing when you actually go through the big book and you see the parallels between spiritual transformation, how it unfolds in our lives, and what the steps are actually pointing you towards. So here we are, sitting around this table at Caribou, and we're singing the praises when um, the man who led us through it, Charlie Hugo, he goes, you guys, I really appreciate you singing the praises. I really appreciate you seeing um, how this has been like such a beautiful piece of my life. I appreciate you valuing this story, but can I just make a note here? Not one of you have asked to do the work invited in this. Not one of you have come my way and asked to take a step or two with me. So while it's, you're appreciating these steps and you're appreciating the potentiality of work inside them, not one of you have actually done it. How far can appreciation really get you? How far can awareness really get you? If awareness never leads to activation, we get stuck out in the sticks and we never make it back to Judea. But Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. And this is the second thing I want to speak about when we think about this, the uh, uh, small failures that tend to trip us up. Actually, let me do this first. When we think about how we're going to actually embody this, there's a lot of questions around that. And so let me just make a brief moment right here. Get your phones ready. We have been talking in abstract ways about this table justice cohort. And what it is in a nutshell, I'm not going to go through all of the X's and O's, but we are trying to create a network of teams of people who will come together to hold one another accountable, to continue to learn together, to prepare one another, encourage one another, have a space where you can talk openly and honestly with one another. We're trying to move the ball forward, and through this, we believe that we can do the next right step. And so if you have an interest, you don't have to have a commitment, but if you have an interest in being, one of the, in being on one of these teams, text this number right now. We'll know it by when it comes in that you, that's what you're doing right here, and somebody will follow up with you. If you don't want to make that text right now, uh, Terry, Tyler, Ben, can you wave some hands? Those guys would love to speak with you. They have been architecting this whole thing, and it's brilliant, and it's beautiful, and it's important. So text that number or talk to them one more. The second small failure that I wanted to identify, though, uh, when I think about what trips us up and what keeps us from Going back to Judea is I want you to notice that Jesus leaves with a word from the wounded, but he does not leave with a report from the coroner's office. He doesn't re leave after reading the obituary 
in the morning paper. He doesn't leave once he has confirmed all the details uh, with the people on the news who are in authority. Especially in these moments of crisis like Jesus is in right here where somebody has died, where something has happened, when an incident has gone down. Have you been willing to believe the words of the wounded? Or have you needed those words to be affirmed by the reports of Rome first? Have you needed uh, your political leaders, your, the institutions, the people in power? As we've talked about, you guys, dominant culture, we've talked about implicit bias, we've talked about how socialization shapes us and how we see the world around us. And so what happens in the midst of that is that we have been trained and conditioned to identify certain people as people that we can trust, which inevitably means that there are some people that we cannot trust. Rich, wealthy, white, those are people that they know what they're talking about. Clearly, they've had success is the rhetoric that we've been told. The flip side of that, which is often unspoken, is that when you hear somebody speaking that is amongst the disinherited pieces of parties in the population, you're skeptical. It's suspect. And yet, not for Jesus. Jesus goes. How is your conditioning? How honestly have you held that? Have you held objectively how you see people of authority and who you just inevitably trust? I'll be honest with you, for a long time, it was very hard for me to believe that police brutality was a real thing, that it was actually occurring. In my experience, I hadn't experienced it. In fact, I was telling my mom this. I remember one specific trip, in, and I went to Milwaukee with some friends in high school. And between Minneapolis and Miller Park, we just got lost. Mind you, not to date myself, but this is like pre-GPS. This is the time where you are logging on at home through an AOL modem, like to mapquest.com, printing it out. If you spill a Mountain Dew on that thing on the way home, you might be lost forever. You might never see your family and friends again. You're just toast. And so somewhere along the lines between Minneapolis and Milwaukee, we just got, we got lost. And somehow, we ended up in a sketchy part of town. How do we know that? Because we got pulled over. And that's the first thing the cop said to us. Cop pulls us over, kid you not. Minivan, minivan full, filled of white teenage boys. It's like 12.30 at night. And the uh, cop pulls us over. We were not speeding. He comes up to our window. And he says, what are you guys doing here? This is verbatim. Actually, I'm going to give you verbatim. I might get explicit here for a second. He goes, what are you guys doing here? I go, I, th I think we got lost. He goes, all right, you know, this is a bad part of town. I want you to stay on my ass. I'm going to get you guys to where you need to go. We had like a presidential escort with the police car. <laughs> this cop practically poured me a glass of milk and read me a story before I went to bed that night. Can you understand how if my experience with the police would make me innately skeptical of receiving somebody that said something completely otherwise? We embrace the truth that reflects our experience. But that doesn't mean that it's true. So how willing you, have you been to follow Christ in this pattern of trusting the words of the wounded? I'll remind you that if we read the story of Jesus, it becomes very clear that while God is not a Republican and God is not a Democrat, he is partisan when it comes to the poor. He is partisan when it comes to the disenfranchised and the disinherited. There's over 300 places in Scripture where it shows that God gives preferential treatment to the poor, to those on the underside of history. 
There might have been Egyptians that were also weeping at night because they had hard days, and yet it says that God heard the poor's cry. He heard the cries and the tears of the slaves. Will you have the courage to be faithful to that? Will you be stuck waiting for a report from Rome to confirm it? Your job is to be faithful. That often trips us up. And if you do that, what happens next? Well, there's going to be people who wish you would turn around. Jesus' friends, they're heading out, and they say to him, But Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews were trying to stone you, and you, you didn't go back to them? Long before you make it to the tomb that seals all the stink, the root of the issue, the moment that you start smelling something and standing up in response, the moment that you start speaking about the things that you are seeing, the moment that you start identifying the cracks that are all around you, one of the small failures that most people succumb to are the friends around you, the people who value uh, they're more worried about disorder than injustice. And they're more concerned about being uncomfortable than they are about being complicit. I mean, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, but there are people out there that really do not believe that racism is a thing anymore. I mean, it doesn't matter that mass incarceration today is, is basically slavery on steroids. Uh, it doesn't matter that our current schools and neighborhoods are more segregated than they were in the 60s. It doesn't matter that the American police and the KKK both endorsed the same political candidate for president. In a lot of people's eyes, in the conversations that you will hold, racism stopped at slavery and the only place it exists is maybe BET. Legitimately, that's conversations I've had. There are people, when you start speaking out on these things, when you start having conversations, you're going to have people that tell you, turn around. You're making us uncomfortable. You're making this difficult. Why can't we just all get along? I don't see color. This doesn't make them bad people. But I do call their eyesight into question. I do. You're missing the story. There's something that's not adding up there. And so when you start saying what you see, and it doesn't sound like you were reading off a Roman report, there are people who are going to get anger, angry with you. And one of the small failures that many cave into at this point is that we tend to coddle the ignorant who are angry instead of confronting their ignorance and their anger. You have to have the maturity to separate the two between those who are ignorant and the ignorance that they were raised inside of, conditioned by, shaped by, limited by. It changes from a response of anger to a place of empathy. And this is an important place, I think, that this is what has hijacked most of our efforts here locally to do racial justice and what has perpetuated the problems at hand is um, th something called Minnesota Nice. You guys familiar with that? Minnesota Nice? There's an author, the author of Waking Up White, Debbie Irving. She talks about how in this culture that's addicted and obsessed with niceness, such a culture serves to protect only those people whose lives are nice doesn't do so for everybody else. Debbie Irving, she also says this, ignoring feelings and trying to smooth them over with pleasant chit-chat only promises to hold people back from allowing their hearts to join their minds. 
in recognizing injustice when it's right in front of them, even inside of them. Friends, it's really uh, crucial that we get this. Jesus says, let us go back to Judea, but even if those boys didn't want to go, he still would have gone. There might be people that will not go with you. Come to terms with that before you have to face it. Because contrary to the myths at hand, the aim of racial justice is not unity. It's equity. The aim of racial justice is not that we are all friends. The aim is that we are all free. Friendship is a byproduct of that freedom, but please do not make it. How do we make this all get along the most without just permission to ignore the disparities at hand? It gives us a pseudo and fake sense of peace to get us through the night. And when you encounter these people, um, needless to say, it can be frustrating. I mean, I can tell you right now that in the past month alone, I've had people, my wife will tell you, that have said that they hoped buses would run me over and that they wished that I was dead and that I was a traitor, literally traitor, as if I betrayed the white people by having conversations in our church for this. It's not, it's not fun. I called in the chemo one night, like just a fragile little white boy would, and... <laughs> And I said, like, how, how do you do, like, any of this? Because she's always getting stepped on. She's always getting pushed back. And we've talked about this before. And she said, keeping in mind the bigger picture, this is a game of inches. It's not about winning people over. It might hurt when you do not. But don't lose sight of the goal. Don't lose sight of the aim. Because the moment that you make it about how do I get them to still like me and still move the ball forward, you're going to start fighting back with tools that you should have never picked up in the first place. Watch what Jesus says when his friends... Try to turn him around. Jesus answered, there are not 12 hours of daylight. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble. For they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. If you see the world through the light, your job is to stay in the light. I heard of Van Jones, this guy right here, tell a story recently that has been stuck in my mind uh, ever since. He was saying how there was one live broadcast that he did where he complimented part of Trump's speech. And when he got on the subway that night, uh, somebody came up to on him, and he was just furious. And it came up on Van Jones, and he said, don't you let up on that sucker, like right in his face. And Van Jones, like he was trying to like talk him down, trying to like understand, like, I, he goes, I, I agreed with what he said there. Like, I, I want to, I, I agreed with him. And the guy goes, it's not about nuance. This is about right versus wrong. This is about good versus evil. And Van Jones took those words into him, and he looked up at the man, and he said, um, if this is about good versus evil, let's make sure that we stay good. Let's make sure that we stay good. This is why I loved Obama. I did. I loved Obama. And her husband wasn't bad either, but you remember what Obama told us. You remember what she said? When they go low, we go high. That's a family value in this church. Because the moment that you pick up the weapons that people use against you, you are reinforcing the power of those weapons, the very weapons that you're trying to dismantle, the very weapons that you disagree with. Don't pick it up. Stay in the light. Stay faithful to the calling that God has put on you. 
the last small failure, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up, is that should you, I feel like I'm talking about Zelda or something. I don't know why Zelda, I've never played that game before. <laughs> it sounds like a game, though. Um, should you make it through all these obstacles, these levels, and you actually are faithfully present where you need to be, um, I want you to notice that when Jesus gets there, people aren't like, Jesus, you gave up the sticks, the security, the comfort to be there. They actually, two people, say to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When you show up, when you show up, when you step forward, please do not expect a round of applause. Please do not expect anybody to pop a bottle. You will fatigue very easily if you feel like you are here, not out of like some moral imperative, but as some way of trying to ease your own white guilt or collect some kind of like accolade for social justice. That's not what this is about. Have a healthy expectation of when you arrive, when you start entering into this work. That it is a hard, grinding, humbling work, and the harder it gets is not an easier excuse for you to leave it. Stay the course, stay faithful. Second thing I would say, and actually the last small failure, um, when you arrive, you will notice that when Jesus arrives, it wasn't exactly the prettiest thing. When you are working in places of pain, and you're trying to get to the place where you recognize that there is something that smells behind the tomb, and I have to do my part to remove that stone. Don't be overwhelmed by people not treating you like a king by people not working with the manners or the characteristics in which you have applied to be the right way to go about things. I had one friend at the last, the last protest I was at, or two times ago, and uh, he heard a young man yell, F the police. And I agree, that's less than ideal. But instead of reacting to somebody yelling, F the police, can you ask what would lead somebody to feel like that is a warranted thing to say? Can you have the endurance, the stomach, the stamina to stay beyond the initial reactivity and actually make it all the way to the tomb and see the thing behind the thing? Have the emotional endurance to be faithful because you serve a God who is concerned about the places that stink. Let me close with just um, this image going back to 16th Street Baptist Church. When that bomb went off, the side of the building was... Uh, blown to bits. They buried those four beautiful girls underneath that rubble. But not a lot of the other parts of the building were lost. For the most part, it, things remained intact and still are intact to this day. And in the sanctuary, there is this image here that has been watching over the black community that has been there for over 100 years now. A white Jesus. When the bomb went off, the only dent that was made in the sanctuary was that. Somehow there were reverberations that were sent through the building, just cleanly cut out Jesus' face. And this sent theologians and scholars across the country to come to 16th Street Baptist Church and ask, what does this mean? What is God trying to say through this moment right here? They were further affirmed that God was trying to do something. When somebody found a pamphlet for that morning's service that showed the pastor's sermon title was, the was called The Necessity of Forgiveness, with um, 
the text from Luke where Jesus says on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. That's what the pastor was going to preach on that morning. James Baldwin, he came and he looked at it. And he said this about it. I want us to leave this. If Christ has no face, then we must give him a new face. Give him a new consciousness and make the whole idea, the whole hope of Christian love a reality. Because as far as I can tell, that has never really been a reality in the 2,000 years since his assassination. Are we willing to go about this work? Not rebuilding what once was, but stepping into what went up after it. That's what you'll see at 16th Street Baptist Church now. Let me pray. Christ, God, you are good. We are grateful. God, you call us into this difficult, heavy, and yet holy work. Uh, Lord, and we don't have any answers. We stumble along the way. But we do know, Lord, that you are concerned about the places that stink, and so we are trying to be concerned as well. Thank you, Lord, for this gift of community, these people, Lord, that we get to take this journey with. Uh, it would be exhausting to do this alone, God. Give us the courage to, all of us, to go back to Judea, to touch the stones, to follow you. In Christ's name, we all pray together. Amen. Amen.